Amen. If you're glad to know that if you're a follower of Christ that you are free, would you say amen this morning? Amen. That is great news that we are free. Uh, today we're going to continue in our series, Conflicted by Grace, and uh, I want to be clear about this. There's nothing conflicting about grace itself. In fact, as we've gone through this series, we've really began to deal with the doctrine of grace. We've been talking about grace. We defined it the very first week as this, is that grace is the unearned and unmerited favor and love of God. Amen? That's what grace is. In case you know what that means, let me translate that. That means that God loves us just because. He loves us, and there's nothing we've done to earn it, and there's nothing we've done to deserve it. He just loves us. That's grace. Where the conflict comes in is with the internal struggle that many of us have. See, while I want to celebrate grace on one hand, yet I live in a world that doesn't operate like God operates, and therefore there's the conflict. Because for some of us, we all know this, that if you live in the business world or you work out in the world at any level, you know this to be true. That the world says this, that if you want to get the raise, if you want to get the promotion, you must perform in order to get it, right? And so we live in a world that's performance driven. But what we find out the very first week of the series of this is that there's nothing we can do. There's no, there's no ritual we can perform that's somehow going to make God love us more or accept us any more than he already has. It's not about grace and works. It's just grace. And we found out for the very first week of the rich young ruler, when he approached Jesus and he said this, what must I do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus set the record straight. It's not about your performance. It's about simply receiving his grace. So for many of us, there's that struggle, grace versus works, and hopefully we put that to rest. And then the next week, we talked about grace and fairness. And this is the one we don't think about a lot, but it's a big deal because we live in a world that says you get what you what? Deserve. You get what you deserve. So if it's reward, you get what you deserve. If it's a punishment, you get what you deserve. And we live in a world that says you get what you deserve. And but yet we've got this grace thing going on and this tension of fairness. And here's what we discovered through the, the labors in the vineyard was this, is that grace, listen, grace isn't fair. It's not fair. Because here's the good news. If I got what I deserved, if you got what you deserved, <coughs> it would be eternal separation from a holy God. Amen? <coughs> Amen? Amen? If you really got what you deserved. But we didn't. <coughs> we did not get what we deserved. Rather, we got what we don't deserve. And that's his love. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about grace and discipline. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, I remember when my boys were little, <coughs> and I even had some teenagers say this one time, you know, there's a, there's a scripture that says, spare the rod and what? I've learned as a youth pastor many, many years ago, it's all about interpretation. As parents, we'd go, yeah, don't spare the rod so you don't spoil the child. A teenager would read that differently. They would read it as, yes, spare the rod and do what? Spoil the child. But the thing we know about loving our kids is this, is that, and it says this in the book of Hebrews, that God disciplines those whom he what? Loves. He disciplines those whom he loves. And so even in this moment of grace, we see discipline. Now, Jesus had come in on Sunday, this triumphal entry. These people had been crying Hosanna. Then he goes back out of the city, and he comes in on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, he enters the city, and he goes straight to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he finds his religious leaders that have made a mockery of the temple. In fact, Jesus says, you've made it a den of robbers. You've made it a place where thieves can take refuge. 
And he said, basically, you've blown this thing up. You have taken what I've called holy and sacred, and you've taken it, and you have corrupted this thing. And in the midst of that grace, he exhibits discipline. What does Jesus do? He turns over tables. He chases out the money changers. And we look at that and go, oh my gosh, is that a reflection of grace? And I would say, absolutely it is. Because if God didn't love us, would he ever discipline us? <coughs> Come on, if God didn't love us, would he ever discipline us? Just throw it to me, Patrick, if you would. Thank you. You better throw it. Well, I can't catch it all. I started to say, you better throw it better than Elijah, but apparently I can't catch. Thank you, Patrick. So, so the thing about it is this, is that in, in, even in grace, there is discipline. We see that with our kids, right? There's discipline and grace. And so he turns over all these tables. And the thing we left with a couple weeks ago was this idea. We are the temple of God. Amen? And maybe we have allowed ourselves to be a refuge of ungodly behavior, ungodly actions, and immoral thoughts. And maybe just like they experienced that day, we too need a cleansing of our temple. Because in grace, there's still discipline. Now, we're going to look at a different what kind of side of grace day. We're going to look at the fruit, the, the fruit of those who've truly received his grace. In other words, the evidence of those who've truly received this grace, this unmerited favor and this unmerited love. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. <coughs> we're going to be in verse 18. Matthew chapter 21, <coughs> excuse me, verse 18. Now, in context, if you are with us last week, we were in Oviedo's campus, and Pastor Mercer covered a large portion of Scripture and really kind of focused on the end of chapter 21. I want us to back up. We're going to look at a story in verse 18 through 22 that I think is extremely important as we think about grace because in this story, you're going to find that Jesus is really teaching two kinds of lessons, and they're going to seem like they're disconnected, but the truth of the matter is they go hand in hand together. And in this passage, we're going to find out what is the fruit are the evidence that we truly have received the grace of God, that we truly have received the love of God, the saving grace of God. What is the evidence of that? So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 18 through 22, and it says this. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Talking about Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw this, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have what? Faith. Faith. All right, let's pray. God, I love you. I thank you for today. May you bless your word. May you use your word. May you challenge us with this today. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this, I know when I start talking about what is the fruit that bears evidence that we've received his grace, many of you are way smarter than I am, so I know what you're already doing. You're already thinking Galatians 5. You're thinking the fruit of the Spirit. Let me just say this to you. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence that the, the Holy Spirit is in us. Amen? Love, joy, peace, patience, all those. That, that is the fruit of the Spirit. But also you can look at other passages where it says, if you love me, keep my commands. So is keeping the commands of God and keeping the precepts and the principles of God also fruit that we are a follower of Jesus? Absolutely. So today what I want to do, and I want you to kind of 
back up a little bit. I want to talk about the foundational fruit. What is the most foundational evidence that we truly have received the grace of God? And I think we see it in this story here. Now, there's two lessons that are going to go on here. The first lesson is the lesson of the fig tree. It's the lesson of the fig tree. Now, if you were studying this, and I'll challenge you, you know, if you were to look up, pick up commentaries, or maybe you've never heard a sermon on the fig tree. I know last week, Pastor Mercer just kind of breezed through it to get to the end where he spent all of his time. And you, so you look at this story and you go, what? I don't know that this is really that significant. And I would say to you, it's extremely significant. That Jesus on his way back into the city, remember he left, he just cleansed the temple, he went to Bethany to hang out, and now it's Wednesday, and now he comes back into the city, and as he enters the city, guess where he's going? He's going back to the temple. The same temple he just cleansed like 24 hours ago, the one he called the, 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 the religious leaders and said, you've made this a den of robbers, that same temple, he's going back there. So on their way back into the city, it says they come across a fig tree because Jesus was hungry. Now, the tree, if you look at it, the tree produced all these leaves. It says here, look, let's look with me in verse 18 and 19 again. It says this, And in the morning he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. Now, if you saw this tree from a distance, you would have assumed this tree had a lot of fruit. Here's why. Because in the ancient Near Eastern culture, fig trees Always produce fruit first, leave second. Okay, always fruit first, leave second. Now, so when they saw this tree from a distance and Jesus hungry and they approach this tree, what is the assumption that everybody can make? This tree filled with leaves must also be filled with what? Fruit. There's got to be fruit. If this tree is loaded with leaves, it's going to be loaded with fruit. However, it wasn't. They get there, they see all these leaves, and yet there's no fruit. Now think about it for a moment. This tree, by all stretch of the imagination, this tree appears to be healthy, but truthfully, it's dead. Now I don't mean dead in the sense that it's brown and it's like falling apart. I mean dead in the sense that it's not producing that which it was created to produce. Guess what a fig tree was supposed to produce? This is a trick question. You ready? Guess what a fig tree was supposed to produce? Oh, you're so smart. That's right. Figs. And if you saw leaves, that means it was loaded with figs. But they get there and there's no fruit. But there's a lot of leaves. And so Jesus looks at this tree that looked healthy but ultimately was dead. And Jesus does what? He curses the tree. He said, you will never produce fruit. Again, he curses the tree. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment because when you look at this, someone make this assumption that, well, why did Jesus curse the tree? Why, well, I mean, what does that mean that he curses? Does it mean that this tree once produced fruit and now is not producing fruit and he curses it? Well, according to most scholars, if you, looked at the, if you looked at the Greek context of the verbs, it would imply that this tree had never produced fruit. So he comes up on it, this tree with a lot of leaves and no fruit, and Jesus curses it. Now, what is the point of Jesus cursing this tree? Here it is. Looking good enough is not enough. You can look like a fig tree all day long. But guess what? If you don't produce figs, you are of no value. Does that make sense this morning? <coughs> be with me on that. So if you come to this fig tree, and it's as beautiful as it can be, all these leaves, and yet there's no figs, that's not good enough. 
And so Jesus curses the tree, not because it was producing fruit and it was bad fruit. No, it wasn't producing fruit at all. It looked good. It looked apart. And from a distance, oh, man, it looked beautiful. It must have. But when they get there, no fruit. And Jesus curses the tree, basically saying, looking good enough is never good enough. And in fact, this tree is of no value to anyone. So what does he do? It withers instantly. Now, think about that for a moment. You may look at that and go, okay, I don't see why in the world it's that important to know that Jesus just withered a fig tree. Well, I think it's extremely important for a couple of reasons. Number one is because this is a picture of Israel. The fig tree is a picture of Israel. The religious leaders is a picture of Israel. This is a picture not only of Israel, but the religious leaders of the day. Now, you think about it. They've just left the temple the day before. Jesus cleans the temples. He calls out the religious leaders. Now he's coming back into the city. He's about to go back into the temple. And let's just think about it for a moment. When he left yesterday, according to Mark's gospel, they were ready to kill him. Do you remember that? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They were ready to kill him. They were seeking to destroy him. Now, I'm, I, let's just be the 11 disciples that's not Judas. I'm not excited about going back into the city, are you? I mean, last time we went in the city, I mean, crazy things happened. I mean, this guy who's done miracles and made the lame to walk and the blind to see and called Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that guy who I loved and I followed, I man, he kind of he lost it, right? I mean, he's flipping over tables, chasing out money changers. He's screaming at them saying, you've made my house a den of robbers. And all of a sudden, the people that once were crying Hosanna are beginning to turn on him. I'm not sure I'm excited about going back into the city. And I'm sure that's how they must have felt. But he goes back in. And on the way in, I love Jesus, not just because he's my Savior. Listen, I love him because it's like Jesus takes every moment and makes it a teaching opportunity. Every moment. So they're walking. He's hungry. Now, is it okay to say that Jesus was humanly hungry? Is that okay? Because he was. 100% God, 100% man. He's hungry. As he goes to a fig tree, no fruit, looks good, and Jesus used it as a teachable moment. See, this, this fig tree is a picture of Israel. Now, think about it for a moment. A nation. Now, I don't know where you land on this, but let me just say this. God chose Israel. He didn't choose Egypt. Just got to say that. He chose Israel. He didn't choose Babylon. He chose Israel. He didn't choose Assyria. And Jesus made it clear as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew that he came first to extend grace to the Jews, right? And they did what with him? They rejected him, right? And so when he goes there, there's, there's this victory, and he uses the moment to paint a picture about the nation of Israel. This is a nation that says they love him, but if you read the Old Testament, more times than not, what you find out is they don't live it, right? They say they love him. They say they want to serve him, but when you read the Old Testament, like, just read the book of Judges. I mean, there's a cycle of rebellion. God sends a judge. They get rebuked. They get in trouble. They get right with God. Then they rebel. I mean, it's just never-ending cycle in the book of Judges. They say they love him, but they don't live like it. And you think about it. This is a group of people that focus more on religion and religious activity than they did focusing on the relationship. Now, I know some of you Bible scholars that they're going to say, well, Doug, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's 619 laws in the Old Testament. That would make them feel like they had to focus on religious activity. And here's what I would say to that. You're 100% wrong. Because if you go back to Abraham, what did God make with Abraham? A covenant. A covenant that said, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. Guess what a covenant is? It's a relationship. Right? You know what God told Israel? I will be your God and you will be my what? people. I will be your God, you men people. You know what that is? 
That's relationship. And so the 619 laws in the Old Testament we see was not just about religious activity. It was telling Israel how they are supposed to function within the relationship. And they took it out of context. And they thought if I do the right stuff, somehow I'll earn favor with God. Instead of going, because I love God, this is how I want to live for God. See, here's a nation that focused on religious activity and rhetoric instead of relationship. This is a nation that had a chance to change the entire world, but they never really bore fruit. Now, there was always a remnant in Israel that did, but as a nation, they never bore fruit. You know what the fruit they did bear? was the fruit of jealousy, the fruit of faithlessness, and the fruit of rebellion, right? Just read the Old Testament, right? And even the New Testament. I mean, that's the heart of the, the Israelite people that became the Jewish people. They didn't bear fruit as a, that living for God and then people being directed toward God and giving God the glory. They bore the kind of fruit of rebellion and jealousy and faithlessness. And guess what? Because of that, ultimately, these religious leaders and these people were of no value to Jesus. Why? Because they weren't about bringing God glory. They were about bringing who glory? Themselves. So this victory is a big deal. He's saying, look, this is a picture of Israel. But let me tell you something else I want you to think about. Could it also be a picture of us? And I don't like that, do you? Could it be a picture of us too? Okay, what was the fig tree created to do? Produce figs. Well, that was a tricky one, wasn't it? Do you know what you were created for? Well, I don't know. My job? Nope. To be married? Nope. To have kids? No, 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 no. Right? What were you created to do? I tell you what you created to do. You were created to be in a relationship with him. You were created to be in a relationship with him that your life might produce in such a way that you would give glory to God. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. That's why you were created. Did you know that? Did you know that? Amen? You were created to be in relationship with him that you may live in such a way that your life would produce so much fruit that when people saw you, they would be directed toward him and they would give God the glory. That's why you were created. And so if there is fruit in our lives, there's evidence that we truly have received that grace. But listen, if there's no fruit, what does that mean? It means our claims are in vain, right? If there's no fruit, there's no salvation. And now some of you want to, want to kind of push the pause button and go, Doug, that's a little bit harsh. I know it is, but that's what Jesus talked about. It's not Doug saying this. This is Jesus. Go back to Matthew 7. We've already covered it. But Jesus says there's going to be the day where he said, you need to know that good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit, and you will be known by the fruit you produce. And then in, in Matthew 7, verse like 23, they come to Jesus, and Jesus says this, listen, there are going to be those of you on that day, judgment day, they're going to come to me and say, Lord, did I prophesy in your name? Lord, did I do miracles in your name? And I'm going to say this to you, what? Cast away from me forever. Why? Because I never knew you. There was no relationship. Man, you may have done all the right stuff, but there's no relationship. So what is the point of the fig tree? You ready? Here it is. The lesson of the fig tree is this, is that there are always pretenders. There are people who looked apart. They know Christianese. They know the right rhetoric. They know the right actions. They know the right activities. They know what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to say, how they're supposed to look. There's a lot of people in the world today that are like the fig tree. They look great. 
that one day they're going to stand before holy God and he's going to say, but I never knew you. I think that may be one of the saddest passages in all the scripture. Matthew 7, 23. That they're going to stand, he said, I never knew you. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. What is the foundation? As we look at this, if we look at this fig tree, there's a foundational fruit that Israel did not possess by and large. There's a foundational fruit that the religious leaders did not possess. And maybe there's a foundational fruit that maybe some of you in this room doesn't possess that exhibits and gives evidence that we've received his grace. And you may say, Doug, what is that foundational fruit? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here it is. You ready? Write it down. The foundational fruit that gives evidence that we've received his grace is this. Faith. Paul says, I have been saved by grace. What? Through what? Faith. The grace of God has been offered to me. His saving grace has been offered. And through faith, I have received that. Amen? Through putting my trust and my faith in him. By saying, Lord, I trust you that you are who you say you are and that you will do all that you promised you will do. I have received your grace by putting my faith in you. Now, the one thing the religious leaders missed was this. Man, they had the religious activity down pat. They had it. I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing. But what they were missing and what Jesus continually kept coming back to was they lacked faith. Man, they knew the rituals. They knew the right stuff. Israel knew the right stuff. But they were missing out on faith. Now, I want to pause there for a minute before we get to the next lesson because this is important. There may be some of you here today, so you know what? I've been in church all my life. I, mean, I walked the aisle when I was like 8 years old or 9 years old or 12 years old, and I gave my life to Christ. And, you know, at the end of the day, Doug, I, I may be that fig tree. I look at my life, and maybe I'm not producing any fruit. When people look at me, they don't see anything different about the way I live. They don't see faith in me. Listen, when life throws a curveball at you, does your friends find you going, you know what? I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what God is up to, but I sure know God's in control. I sure know that I can trust him. I don't know how God is going to unpack and unfold this thing, but I know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that God is in control. I know that his will is working it out right now. I don't know what's happened, and I'm sad that it has happened, but at the end of the day, I know I can put my faith in him. Do your friends hear you doing that? Or do they hear you going through the hee-haw theology? You don't remember hee-haw theology, right? It's my mom and dad's favorite show when I was growing up to watch Hee Haw. I've said this before, right? It's the, you, know, you remember the song, Gloom, Despair? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The all theology that just says, woe is me, how pitiful me, right? And so the thing that they were missing was faith. The foundational fruit that proved that they had received his grace was faith, and they are missing. Now, Jesus shifts the, the conversation because guess who he's talking to? His 12 disciples. Well, at least we know 11 of the 12 had a lot of faith in Jesus, right? We know one is a traitor. Hadn't happened yet, but he's a traitor. But the other 11 guys had faith in him. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, hey, Jesus, what, Peter said, hey, Jesus, what is our reward? Because we've left everything for you. We've put all our faith in you. So Jesus changed the conversation and pointing the fig tree is a picture of Israel and those that are pretenders. And now he shifts the conversation to a lesson on faith which have been relevant to those 11 guys. And look what he says in <clears throat> verse 20 through 22. Here's what he says. And when the disciples saw what he had done, they marveled, saying, how did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's done to the fig tree, but you will be able to say to the mountain, be taken and thrown to the sea, and it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have what? Faith. If you have faith. Now, there's two lessons that Jesus gives here, and I want you to write them down quickly. Here's the first one. That faith without doubt empowers us. Faith without doubt empowers us. <clears throat> now, here's what I mean <clears throat> by that. Faith meaning I put my trust in God. I have my trust in his will and in his power. Not mine, not my wisdom, but I have put my trust in his will and in his power. And when I do that without hesitation, when I do that without a divided heart, and when I do that without doubt, I will see the movement of God in my life like never before. That's what he says. You notice Jesus says there, faith without what? Without doubt. Faith without doubt. Now, <clears throat> some of you go, well, Doug, we all doubt. I know. But let me clarify doubt for a minute. In the other gospel, it says the guy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. He wasn't doubting. He was saying, Jesus, I trust you, but I got some questions. I got some uncertainties, but I need your help. Now, Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to have faith without doubt. You need to trust me, trust my will, trust my power, trust my plan, trust me with everything without hesitation, without doubt, without a divided heart, and you will see me work in and through you like you've never experienced before. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because he knew something. He knew that doubt hinders us, that doubt keeps us from experiencing the work of God in our life. Now, here's what I mean by doubt. Have you ever had something happen to you in your life? And you went to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I trust you. Then you find yourself, keep going back to the Lord, and eventually... There was this thought that crossed your mind, and it was this thought. I'm just not sure if God can. You ever had that one? Nobody's raised their hand for that one, are we? But haven't we all struggled with that sometime? God, I got, I got a wayward child. I've been praying for years. I've been on my knees. I just don't know that you can. God, we've been trying to fix our marriage for so many times. We've gone to counseling, and we're reading scripture together, and we're praying. But God, I, I just don't know if you can. That's doubt. And he said, I want you to have faith without doubt, because faith without doubt empowers you. Now, it's a beautiful thing that Jesus is doing here. He's paralleling those that are pretenders that look good, who have no faith, and therefore bear no fruit as powerless to those who have faith, who are bearing fruit as being powerful. See, the ones that look good look all powerful. That fig tree, I'm sure, looked beautiful like it was going to produce all these figs, but when they got there, what a disappointment, right? And Jesus drawing this parallel there. We've these two stories are not disconnected. They are interconnected. He's painting this picture that, hey, listen, there are pretenders who act the part, but they're bearing no fruit, and there's no power in that. But then there's those who have real faith. And if you will have that kind of faith without doubt, and you will trust me, you will see me move in such a powerful way that will blow your mind. And so Jesus says something that's kind of unheard of here. He says, if you have that kind of faith, you'll be able to speak to the mountain and throw it into the sea. You'll be able to wither the fig tree. Now, when you hear that, <clears throat> there's a part of us that struggles with that. But let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. 
He's not saying that we have access to his power to show out and to show off. Amen? You with me on that? Okay, now not all of you are with me. Are you with me on that? Say amen. Okay, that's what he means. Now, if that were the case, in fact, when I was studying and preparing last night, I was thinking, I kind of had the, the, I was remembering the old movie, Bruce Almighty. I know it's sacrilegious, but you remember the movie, Bruce Almighty? He's given the powers of God, and he's sitting at the cafe table, and he parts the soup like the Red Sea was parted. You know what I'm talking about? And then he walks outside, and he kind of shoots a gun at a fire hydrant and blows the lid of water off. Well, that's what showiness would be about. And that's not what Jesus' point is. His point is not that if you have faith without doubt, you can go out and do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. His point is that when you have faith without doubt, you're tapping in to his power and what he will do in and through you will be supernatural. It will be unbelievable. See, didn't Jesus already tell us this when he said, with man, all things are impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. I don't know about you, but I want God to move in me powerfully, don't you? I want to see God do supernatural things in and through my life. I want to sit back and just be in awe of the work that God is doing and how he blows my mind with what he's doing. Well, how do I get there? Well, I have to have faith without doubt. So faith without doubt empowers us. And then the second lesson is this. Faith without doubt produces dependence on God. Look at verse 22. It says this. And whatever you ask, the word and is a conjunction. It's important because it takes us back to the other statement. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Here's what he means. That when we have this kind of faith, faith always leads us back to praying and to seeking God. Now think about it. Why do we pray and seek God? Many of us pray because we have a need. That's okay. Why do we seek God? Well, we have a need. Can I submit to you this morning that if we really have the faith that Jesus is talking about, this faith that trusts his will and his power, that we will pray because we want to continue to know God's will. We want to know God's plan. We want to know that we are walking, as James would say, in step with the Spirit, that we are living according to the Spirit, right? And so those who have this kind of faith that he's talking about, those who have it will continue to pray and to seek the Lord. And when we, listen, and when we ask in unison, with God's will, not your will, but with God's will, guess what? God acts on our behalf. Now, did you hear me? When we pray and we seek and we pray in unison with God's will and with his power, God acts on our behalf. Let me give an example. Let's just say here one of you have a coworker, probably all of you do, but let's just say Craig back there has a coworker who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. If Craig starts to pray, Lord, would you provide me an opportunity? Would you provide a divine moment that I might be with that person in such a way that I could share your gospel? You think God's going to do that? You think God's going to do that? Yes, he's going to. You know why? Because sharing the gospel is his will. Matthew 28, go make disciples, right? So he said, I'm praying in unison with God's will. Therefore, God is going to act. The same thing happened in Exodus chapter 3. The nation of Israel was in captivity in Egypt. They were known as the Hebrew people. And it says in Exodus chapter 3 that God heard the cries of his people. And guess what he did? He raised up Moses. Right? When we pray in unison with God, he always, always acts. Now here's some conclusions I want to come to with the story. It's this. Number one is that Pretenders are always going to be around. People who look good, but nothing has ever changed inside, and they're fake. 
Secondly, the thing I want you to know is that those who are true believers, that the fruit of their faith is in their lives. Now, I'm not saying there's not moments in our lives where we struggle or we have doubt, but there is this something about us that says that no matter what comes our way, I can trust God. And that when we have that kind of faith, it will empower us. We'll see God do wonderful things. When we have that kind of faith without doubt, we will find ourselves continually seeking after him to know his will. Now, the interesting thing about this is the story really culminates in verse 28 through 32. I want you to turn there if you have your Bibles. 28 through 32, it'll be on the screen. But after Jesus tells this lesson, the fig tree, and he talks about the lesson of faith, he goes back into the temple. And, they, and, the, and the religious leaders begin to question his authority. And then Jesus tells this parable that is the perfect climactic culmination of what he's just taught the disciples. Look at me in verse 28, it says this. He says to the religious leaders, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went out to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son. The son said the same, and he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two do you think did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes Get into the kingdom of God before you. Now think, think about that for a moment. He's talking to the religious elite. And he says this. Look at it again. For I tell you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get in the kingdom before you do. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you do not believe or have faith in him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Now, what is Jesus telling these religious leaders that they are lacking? They are lacking the foundational fruit of what? Faith. John came your way. You didn't believe him. You had no faith in what he was saying. Even when I showed up on the scene, you had no faith. But there's these people, and he calls them out. Prostitutes and tax collectors. Now, we know why he probably called them out, right? If you were in the Jewish culture of the day, who are the most lowest on the social pole? Who is the scum of the earth? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, Matthew would have known this all too well. You know why? That's where Jesus found him too, wasn't it? Collecting taxes. And Jesus says, listen, these people that you call the scum of the earth, guess what? They had the foundational fruit. They had faith, and they're going to get in long before you do. So this all culminates in this one little parable. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about with me this morning as we close, and it's this. Maybe you're here today, and you've never put your faith in Christ. You've heard the stories. You've listened in church, but you've never really put your faith in him. You maybe said the right words. You showed up, maybe even walked an aisle, but you've never really trusted him. Listen, looking good enough is never going to be enough. You can look like you follow Jesus. You can wear the Christian t-shirts. You can have the Christian jargon. But if nothing's changed in here, there's no salvation. I didn't say it. Jesus did. And today, maybe you need to trust Christ. Or maybe there's some of you here today that you like the fig tree. You look at your life and you know what? Hey, man, I, I've been looking the part a long time. But the truth of the matter is, I think I'm a pretender. I think I've been maybe faking it. Hoping I can what? Make it. And the truth is, I can't. And today, you need to swallow that pride. Well, Doug, everybody thinks I'm a Christian. Who cares? Who cares? Are you willing to bank your eternity on what everybody else thinks? Man, I sure wouldn't. 
And maybe today you feel like you're the pretender. Today you need to give your life to Christ. Or maybe you're here today and you're like me, you're a believer. And as you look at your life, here's two things you notice. First of all, you notice, I don't feel and sense the power of God moving in my life. Or I feel like I, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not hearing from God. I'm just not, I'm not getting the answers. I'm not, I'm not seeing God move like I want to see. Well, maybe it's because your heart is filled with doubt. And maybe today what you need to do as a believer is you need to lay down your heart of doubt. And you need to rekindle the trust that you have in him. So I don't know where the Lord has you today, but I do know he wants you to make a decision. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask everybody to close your eyes and just bow your head. Stay seated just for a moment. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And you do have a welcome card there with you. And if you need to make a decision today, we'd love for you to fill that out. Later you can drop it in the offering plate as it passes. But for those of you here today, and you say, you know what, I, I've never trusted Christ. Or maybe you feel like you're the pretender in the room. And you just surrender your life to Christ. Would you just simply pray a simple prayer like this? Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that being good enough is never going to be enough. I know I can't look the part and fake it any longer. But today, for real, I put my trust in you. I surrender my life to you as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me my sins. Come into my life and change me. My faith is in you. And I'm telling you, if you prayed that, and he'll invade your life, he'll come in as your Lord and your Savior. And he'll change you, change your eternity, change the way you live right now. Because you have the foundational fruit that proves that you've received his grace. That fruit is faith. If you made that decision just in a moment, I'll be up front, would love to talk to you. Or you can take your card and say, today I give my life to Christ. And just drop in the offering as it passes later. We'd love to know that. If you're here and you're a believer, and you don't sense or feel like God is moving, you're not seeing him moving a powerful way in your life, maybe it's because there's doubt there. Maybe some things have happened that's jaded you, and you're just not sure. Today, would you just lay down your heart of doubt? You may need to come to this altar, get on your knees before a holy God and confess that. Or maybe right where you're sitting today. But just take a moment and deal with maybe that heart of doubt. And then I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue in worship. Let's all stand together as we pray. God, I love you. I thank you for your word. I know it's one of those stories we just kind of breeze through. But I think it's a powerful story. A fig tree that looked great. It was a pretender. And God, there may be some pretenders in the room today just like there were back in the day, just like most of Israel, just like the religious leaders. They talked a good game, but they were missing the foundational fruit of faith. And God, I pray for those today that have never trusted you today and a moment ago, they prayed that prayer. They put their faith, their trust in you. And God, if they did that, we'd love to celebrate that. But I also pray today, Father, for the believers because Jesus also challenged the disciples to trust him without doubting him, to trust his will and his power without the uncertainty. 
And God, I know that as one standing here before people that I love and care about, there have been times in my life where I have had doubts. But God, it's in those times of doubt that I also look at and go, those were moments I didn't feel your, you see your power working in my life. I didn't acknowledge the, the power of how you were doing things around me. It's in, it's in those moments that I didn't feel like when I prayed, they were just shallow prayers hitting a glass ceiling, Lord. It's in those moments, and as I read this passage, I'm reminded that maybe the reason I feel that way is because doubt has set in. And if I'm going to acknowledge the supernatural that you're doing in my life, if I'm going to acknowledge the supernatural you're doing around me, if I'm going to pray and seek you and do your will, I've got to lay my doubt down. So God, I pray for every believer in the room today. May we lay a heart of doubt down and pick up a heart of faithfulness. And may we rekindle our trust in you today. Lord, you move only as you can. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. And amen, amen. If you need to come, this altar's open. If not, would you just take a moment, take a real moment, and just do business with God. And would you be faithful to respond as the Lord leads you?